This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. I'm Abby Ellsworth with On Being a Police Officer. Thanks for tuning in. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast Anthony Guglielmi, who is currently the Director of Public Affairs with the Fairfax County Police Department in Virginia. I was particularly interested in talking with Anthony because in addition to Fairfax County, Anthony has had the lead public affairs role with two of the largest departments in the country, Baltimore PD and Chicago PD. Roles that required managing public perceptions, building, and at times repairing community trust. Anthony helped lead Chicago PD in becoming one of the first departments to release body cam video within days of an incident, something that simply wasn't done at the time. Like me, he is a civilian and has used his roles not just to respond to incidents, but to shine a light on all the good works officers do every day, the stories that don't make the news. And he's done that in a unique way, all of which we'll talk about. Anthony, welcome. You have such an impressive background. I've touched on a couple of roles you've had, but let's do an overview. You started out in public affairs with the Connecticut Board of Parole, You've done work for the New York State Senate, the Armed Forces Foundation, the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, the U.S. Department of State, and as I mentioned, the Baltimore and Chicago Police Departments. You've also had important roles with major cities' chiefs and the International Association of Chiefs of Police, two of the largest police organizations in the world. So you are a pro. I've been around, yeah, I've been, I've been around, uh, but really the, the uh, position that I'm most proud of is I was, uh, I was an intern on a, I'm not going to say the show, but I was an intern on a late night talk show back in my college days. I thought my life path was to uh, eventually take over the Tonight Show with uh, Johnny Carson, but people had other plans. I uh, ended up <laughs> falling into a public information, the communications role. I really enjoyed it. I really felt uh, a need and a connection to have to inform the public about what government does each and every day. And so walk me through, you know, we're both civilians and I've been drawn to law enforcement for my own reasons. I want to tell the real stories of law enforcement, you as a civilian also, and a PR professional. What, how did those two come together? Yeah, really by accident. I mean, I never thought in a million years that I was going to be the spokesperson or the face of, of a police department of all things. But once I got into this profession and I realized how really heroic men and women are every day that make it their life's mission to make their hometowns safer. And, and what they do every day was really inspiring. And it was really important to be able to tell those stories and advocate for these uh, police officers and these departments. And also to balance that, I I think it's important that you have somebody who's trained in communications that can also sometimes help the agency realize the importance of transparency and the importance of public trust. Because in order to be effective as any type of government, whether you're a police officer or you work as an accountant for, for the city, you need to have public trust. I know with many police departments, their media relations person, their PIO, is often a sworn officer who has come up through the ranks, and PR may not be in their background. Often adding a PR professional like yourself to the mix can be a great addition and a great balance. No police officer will tell you that they studied communications and they decided to be a police officer so they could be a communications person. It's just not the way it works. They want to be officers, they want to be cops. What I have found is that the best team is really a hybrid team 
professional communicators that know how to read, right. write, and message teamed up with police officers who know the perils of the job and can really speak with authority on that. I also believe as much as possible that it's important, especially in, in 2022, we have to show America that you know these police officers are really your neighbors. And the only difference is they decided to join the police department to make their community safer. So they are your neighbors, and I think people need to see them. They need to hear from them, and they need to have their own trust uh, with people in uniform. I mean, you've been doing this for quite a few years now. Have you ever seen it as difficult as it is now? It's hard. It's, uh, I, I think a lot of that is, you know, we fall victim to politics. We fall victim to kind of this uh, public perception. I also think there's a lot that was deserved. I think over the years there have been certain police departments and certain police officers, like any profession, that have abused that public trust. But the number of actual officers, well, let me say this, good cops hate bad cops, right? We don't want them in our departments. We don't want them right. to tarnish everything that, that we've worked for, everything that we've built up our, our agencies to be. But unfortunately, there are a couple in this profession. And I think what's important is the commitment to hold people accountable. Let's, let's dig in. You have such an impressive background. And I know when we talked in the pre-interview, you mentioned working with the parole board and you said you learned quickly how important your words are, how you need to get a handle on perception. And then at some point in your journey, you responded to a blind ad with a major city police department for the first civilian PIO job. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So my first job uh, ever. So uh, after I uh, kind of gave up on television, I was finishing college and my my parents were essentially like, hey, uh, we love you, but you, you got to get yourself a real job here. So wh why don't you give a shot at communications and public relations? And I, I first said, absolutely not. You know, I, I want to stay in, in this in this uh, television business. Having Italian parents, you don't you sometimes don't get to do what you want. So uh, I was kind of forced to to try out this entry level public information position uh, working for the state of Connecticut. And lo and behold, they ended up transferring me to be the public relations representative for the state parole board. This was at the tail end of a, of a governor's administration. And of course, they had a pretty high profile issue where an individual on parole had committed a terrible killing. And now the parole board was front and center. And it really taught me the importance of how public perception is so important for a government agency and how it's important for that government agency to be transparent about what happened. I certainly wasn't calling the shots back then but I really saw the impact of what happens if you don't call the shots the right way. I think you really have one chance <laughs> to make a first impression. I think that, that saying is, is dead on. You know, I've just worked my entire career to be transparent to the community, try to educate and, and help my departments and, and my bosses, my police chiefs, to embrace that concept. It's amazing what you can do when you have the power of the people behind you. Right. Tell me about the blind ad that you answered. <laughs> Yeah, so as life went on, I ultimately found my way in Washington, D.C., living down here. I was just finishing a career with the, with the federal government at the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, and I, was, uh, I wanted to stay in this business to be a spokesperson for, for a government agency. I liked law enforcement, and I just felt like I was in my, my place. So I, I found a blind ad online. Uh, it was a public information director for a major city police department, and uh, that's what basically all it said. And I applied for the job. I did a uh, pre-telephone screening. And then uh, during the process, I learned that that police department was the Baltimore Police Department in Maryland. And at the time, the only thing I knew about Baltimore, Maryland, was that they had great crab cakes. 
<laughs> Other than that, I did not know a heck of a lot, this kid from Connecticut. And I knew less about policing. So I have to say the men and women of the Baltimore Police Department, after, after I, I got the position, really embraced me. They really ran me through the ringer. They wanted me to go through as much exposure as possible of what a police officer does, not only from the time they're hired at the academy, but all the way through the job. I kind of did a uh, almost like a medical residency of the police academy. I sat through various classes. They ran me through the, the firing range. They made me fire weapons. They made me get tased to know what that feeling's like, pepper sprayed, all of those <laughs> things that police officers have to do. Because uh, the sentiment at the time was that if you're going to be the spokesman, you have to at least have a feeling of what it's like. Uh, after that, I did ride-alongs at every single shift in Baltimore City. I did ride-alongs with every single rank, from police officer all the way up to bureau chief. And I really got as best of an education as I could on what it was like to, to police a major city like Baltimore with, with some of the challenges that they had. I was fortunate to work for an amazing police commissioner who really, really understood the importance of transparency and branding. At the time, the television show The Wire was pretty popular, and people with inside, inside the department had mixed feelings about the show. They really liked it because it was entertaining. It kind of painted the police department in a negative light and all the hard work that those officers did. So we worked really, really hard to build a pretty amazing team of police officers who, who kind of turned communicators. At the time, we were the second police department in the U.S., to ever go on Twitter and start putting information out on Twitter back in 2008. And no one was doing that back then. Hmm. Uh, we also were the first police department to have our own newscast that we would do every day at noon from police headquarters. So our, our little tagline was, um, here's what you didn't see last night on the six o'clock news that happened in Baltimore. And we would talk about the amazing stories that police officers did, you know, from, from delivering babies on the side of the road to amazing stories of heroism those uh, news vignettes, if you will, were read by actual police officers and they were streamed on the city's public access channel and we called it BPD TV. Uh, it was a little, a little fun project that we had started, but it really became popular within the city. A lot of city residents tuned in and they liked hearing from their police officers, the people that were patrolling their neighborhoods. And ultimately it ended up getting profiled on CNN as um, you know, a police department's way to connect and, and, and tell their own story. So it was pretty neat. That's great. And we're talking, the years you were there were end of 2008 to August 2013? Yes. When you think of Baltimore, it do, I, do, I just interviewed John J. Wiley, who was with the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast, and he was with Baltimore PD from 1980 to 1992, and he was talking about how dangerous it was, gun violence. I'm not opinionating if you Google Baltimore, it is regarded as a dangerous market. So absolutely, what makes it so dangerous and what challenges were you facing at the time? Because I think it was before some of the high profile incidents that people might be familiar with. Yeah, it, it was before it was before police body cameras. It was before the anti-police climate. And, and I'd say what was mm. uh, very educational for me about Baltimore was that it is the real story of an American city you know, that lost opportunity. I remember my police commissioner, my boss, would say this all the time. Our biggest weapon against crime are jobs. If I could go out and give jobs to people in these neighborhoods, we could cut the murder rate in half. And what I learned about Baltimore <laughs> is that, especially in some of these deeply impoverished communities, working for the local gang is how you put food on the table. Selling drugs, being a lookout, 
being uh, a delivery person or what, what, whatever the occupation is for the gang is how these individuals were making money to, to raise their families. And the violence and the gang culture was so entrenched in Baltimore City that it was really educational for me because I never thought of it that way. I remember driving down the street one time in the Western, uh, the Western District, which is obviously the west side of the city, and I saw this elderly woman pushing a walker. One of the detectives next to me said, that's a lookout. Oh, my God. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? No, it's not. That's a little, little old lady. She's crossing the road. She goes, no, she's not. She's a lookout for the local dope dealer. Watch. And the officer turned around, and we went around the block. And sure enough, as we were turning around, she made a motion with her walker to somebody up the street because she recognized that the car we were in was likely a police car. And I said, how the heck did she know that? Like, we're not even in a, in a car that looks remotely like a police car. And she says, because you're a white guy, and I'm a black guy. And we're driving together through West Baltimore. So the only reason for that is that we're probably undercover cops. So it was really fascinating for me to kind of see the, the street culture of, of Baltimore City. And I got to tell you, I, I really, really embraced that job. Uh, at the time, it was before I had a family of my own. And I mean, I spent every waking hour at the police department because I really wanted to understand, you know, how did this city get so violent? And, you know, how, what is it like to police in this city? where it's just so dangerous. And that's when I really got an appreciation for the job of being a police officer. It, you, you will be hard pressed to find more dedicated police officers than in Baltimore or Chicago. I mean, for what those people have to put up with, the conditions, the treatment from some of these communities, it, it's really remarkable that they get up and go back to work. So I was anyway very, very impressed with what I saw. Certainly had many challenges, don't get me wrong. So when you talk about challenges, what were they? So certainly learning the profession, learning the city and learning the job, you know, was an immense challenge. You know, I was in Baltimore for roughly five years and we certainly had our share of integrity issues. But the biggest challenge that we had was reducing gun violence. And I think the, it was the biggest challenge, but also the biggest success. At that time, we formed an amazing partnership with a guy named Rod Rosenstein. And Rod Rosenstein was the United States Attorney for Maryland at the time, uh, who ultimately became the Deputy Attorney General of, of the United States. And what was amazing about that partnership is you had the local police department, you had the federal prosecutor, you had the state's attorney that were all working together to combat gun crime. So we took a murder rate in Baltimore that was somewhere at the time in, in the mid-300s. And for three years in a row, we brought that murder number down to lower than 200, so 100 less people every year. And that was because we really targeted enforcement around those small individuals that were driving violence. And we cut the arrest rate in more than half. I think the previous strategy had been a mass arrest, right? Arrest everybody for everything, put them in jail, and that's, that'll make the city safer. But we found is, is that actually hurt the city because as these people were coming out of jail, it was really, really hard for them to get jobs and to re-enter society. And there weren't that many jobs to get. So what we found is a really targeted strategy around a very small number of individuals that were disproportionately responsible for violence. We also made it our life's work to really build a community policing model back then. I'm really passionate about all that work because it saw results. And we were able to successfully use communications and public education to tell the city, inform the city, how much their police officers were working to get guns off the street. And I learned a ton about the importance of targeted prosecution and putting the right people in jail for the right reason at the right times. A pretty good success rate of making Baltimore a safer city. 
the, the murder numbers now in Baltimore are much higher than they were back then. We felt that we moved the needle in the right direction for our time. That's interesting. And it sounds productive. You know, when you talk about jobs being the issue, driving, I guess, poverty, driving desperate measures, driving crime, you know, so often I feel like the police are blamed for having to react to situations they did not create. I certainly think over the years there were police officers that have abused their powers. I think there are police officers, and just like every profession, there are police officers that don't treat people the way we would want to be treated. But with that, I think that's a very, very low number of of individuals when you look at the entire profession. 99% of a police department wakes up every day and their whole focus is how do we make where we live and work a better place, a safer place. And I think, unfortunately, there is a little bit of a, of a perception that's been cast unfairly. But I don't want to say that it's completely un, unwarranted because there certainly have been police officers over the years that have abused uh, their positions in public trust. But what I have always found, it's important how a department responds to those things. If a department is not transparent with problematic behaviors, if they don't demonstrate a commitment to hold people accountable and they inform the public on how they do it, well, then the public deserves to be as angered as they are. But I think overall, policing has shown that it is very capable of policing itself and holding bad actors accountable. Well, I don't know if you want to address some of the things that happened after you left because you weren't there. And I typically don't talk about specific incidents. But after your time, there was Freddie Gray, who died in police custody during a transport in 2015. And then there was the gun scandal, the GTTF, which stands for the Gun Trace Task Force. Do you want to talk about either of those things? Maybe start with the GTTF? Detestable. What the Gun Trace Task Force ended up doing, and remember, it it was uh, the Gun Trace Task Force was started in the administration when I was there. It was part of this strategy that I talked about to, to target gun crime. What happened over the years is I think there were not accountability measures put into place. As police administrations changed and leadership cycled, there were not metrics to ensure that officers were being accountable. There, there was not, as we were building up a gun enforcement model, we, we should have also been building up an integrity and accountability model as well. And I think that was an area that um, if you look back, probably uh, we could have done better at. And what ended up happening, I, I can tell you what I researched, but you lived it. So tell me. The Gun Trace Task Force is one of the most detestable police scandals in, in modern era. And you know people have a right to be upset about what occurred. People have a right to be angry about what occurred. I'm angry about what occurred there because those those men are a disgrace to everyone that wore the Baltimore police badge. People have died in the name of, of service to that city. And those uh, officers, those former officers have really disgraced uh, everything that, 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 that the honorable men and women stand for. So I'm, I'm very upset at what occurred there. I'm glad they were held accountable. It started as this program, as you said, to get guns off the street. And then there were some officers, not the whole department, who started taking this down an illegal path. And what they did was they planted, if I understand, they plant, they would plant guns on people or in their homes or in their cars and then arrest those people so that they could deliver the guns. Yep, bribery, extortion, some of the worst things that you would never see happen even in a third world country, these individuals are accused of. I am glad that they were held accountable. It did take the federal government to come in to, uh, to clean that up. 
I'm, I'm just glad to see that the city's now on its way back to perhaps better days. Right. I mean, it's it's what you talk about, the worst scenario. Here you are. The things that I like to believe don't happen. You know, your, your individual a cop arrests you and plants evidence on you. I mean, I just, I can't imagine. So, but as you said, they were, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's why people are angry, right? It's why people are, right. are frustrated with policing is because you have individuals like this. Now, it was a, a small number of individuals in that department. There's over 3,000 police officers in Chicago, and the vast majority of them are hardworking, honest people who want to make that city safer. And unfortunately, the department will now forever be branded and wear the scar of those dozen or so officers and commanders who were complicit in these despicable crimes. So I think what's very important and what the city's been working hard to do is to rebuild trust, to now show that they have implemented systems so something like that could never happen again. Well, and as I mentioned, there was the incident with Freddie Gray, but that was after you left, and that was two years before these officers in the gun scandal were convicted. I don't know much about, I mean, I, I obviously saw the news, but I, I did not know much about Freddie Gray. I just, I just wasn't there at the time. And for those who don't remember, he was handcuffed and put into the back of a transport vehicle? It was a, yeah, a, vehicle, a prisoner a transport van was uh, handcuffed and put back there. He was not restrained properly during the transport to jail. Uh, sadly, sadly died. You know, one of the theories at the time was that the officers purposely did that to him, put him in that position. Uh, those officers were ultimately charged. They were charged very quickly, and I believe every one of them was um, was exonerated. It was one, one of the uh, notable cases, in addition to Laquan McDonald in Chicago, of how we're in the condition we are in today and why it's so important that you have a very trustworthy communications office or public information office within a police department. You did then go to Chicago PD, so you picked two of the toughest markets in the country. Right? Yeah, I, I didn't. I it certainly didn't seek out Chicago. I remember getting a call back then that they had a a, a video. They had a, a very difficult use of force incident where a young man was killed by Chicago police. Is that the look? That was Laquan McDonald. Yeah, and what was okay. um, what was tragic there is uh, just a, a series of poor judgments. I mean, the department was never. Uh, as transparent as it should have been during that time. And, and I, I don't want to you know, blame the department because in that era, in, in 2013, 2014, things were very different. I mean, you did not see the level of transparency that you do today. This was before body cameras. The, the common protocols for any type of investigation is that you just really didn't talk about things until those investigations were completed. You didn't want to harm a, a prosecution. You didn't want to contaminate interviews. Unfortunately, that that strategy, that mindset back then ended up hurting departments like Chicago because they were not able to be as transparent as they should have been. And then when the facts came out, the earlier statements that the department had made turned out to not be true. And mm. I don't think the department went out there and made false statements on purpose. I do think that the people making the statements did not have all the facts of that incident. And I, and I know for certain you know, that the police administration there at the time, had they known the, the gravity of what they had, I think they would have done things differently today. And can we recount what the incident was? Sure. So Laquan McDonald was a young man, some say maybe uh, even having a mental crisis. Officers were trying to de-escalate that situation, and he was holding a knife. 
he was advancing towards officers. He, he was walking by a police car. I believe at some time he even stabbed the tires of a police car. One officer in particular, uh, Officer Jason Van Dyke, had come to the scene a little later than m- most units were there. Mr. Van Dyke shot uh, Laquan McDonald 16 times. Laquan McDonald was black. Laquan McDonald was black and, and Officer Jason Van Dyke was white. I gather he thought Laquan was advancing on him. Correct. There were some statements that he thought Laquan McDonald was advancing on him. And then the statements that Mr. Van Dyke had said, the statements that several officers have said, were contradicted by video. Part of the challenge is the city never released that video. And at the time, there was a federal investigation that was launched immediately into that shooting. So the U.S. Attorney's Office shortly thereafter had announced that they would be reviewing the shooting. Just given the era, the police department decided that they weren't going to release any video because it was now part of a federal investigation. And uh, I believe it took some very organized community activists to um, petition the court to force the city to release that video. And this was about the time I was hired in Chicago. I I wasn't there for the actual Laquan McDonald shooting, but I was there to help the city think through how they can release this video and simultaneously rebuild public trust, or at least come up with a plan to rebuild public trust. And how did they do that? So we had a lot of work, right? We, I got there in, uh, let's see, the May of 2015, and we released the video somewhere around uh, December, the end of the year. And for six full months, we worked as hard as we could to at least prepare the community for what this video was going to show. As the, um, the video came out, it was apparent by the, the mayoral administration at the time that the police administration had to, be go- had to go. They had to change, change out the police superintendent who at the time was Gary McCarthy. Uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel had decided to uh, remove him from his position so that CPD could have uh, a fresh start with somebody new who could carry on the torch of of rebuilding trust. We had applicants uh, apply for the job. There was a a formal process. And when the mayor interviewed those individuals, he felt that that none of them had the, the connection that he was looking for, the passion to rebuild trust. So out of nowhere, he ended up picking a guy that did not apply to be the police superintendent, he was uh, the chief of patrol, meaning he was in charge of all the men and women in uniform in the department. And he picked Eddie Johnson to become the city's next police chief. Eddie Johnson was kind of known in Chicago as a community guy. Uh, he was a, a district commander, and he was basically known for all of his crime-fighting strategies involved some type of community partnership. Internally within the department, he was he was fairly well regarded, and he was very well regarded in community groups, specifically in um, the south side of the city where he's from. He grew up grew up on the city south side. He's from the Cabrini-Green housing project. So he had the Chicago through and through story. And Mayor Rahm Emanuel at the time uh, picked him out of the universe of people to, to lead the next generation of the department. Okay. And then to, so, so to go back, the video was released. And then at that point, Officer Van Dyke was charged and convicted. Officer Van Dyke was charged, yes. I believe he was charged with murder and he was convicted and sentenced. And... 16 counts of aggravated assault for every bullet. Yes, he was charged 16 times by the prosecutor, which was unique because uh, certainly other individuals charged with murder were not charged in that way. So that was a unique charging decision by the prosecutor. Certainly, uh, police officers would say that it was was unfair, that, 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 that the odds were stacked against uh, the police officer. One thing that we all have to do, we all have to do uh, as Americans, is we have to respect our judicial system. And this was a system, right. this was a, a decision by a, a court. It went through the entire process. Due process was given in this case. Even though I may disagree or, or agree with an outcome, I have to respect it. 
And uh, that's all I ask that, that people do. Right. And then you did have violence and riots, I guess, when the video was released. Yeah, what, what happened after the Laquan McDonald video was was pretty epic for, for us. I mean, we, we had lost our police superintendent, so leadership uh, had changed almost overnight. The state changed the way that officers were allowed to conduct investigative stops. So now uh, officers were afraid, was this, this stop going to be, be judged against them because it was a a civil agreement with the ACLU that these stops would be reviewed by a former federal judge who would review the constitutionality of every stop. So now officers felt like every time they stopped somebody potentially armed on the street, that it had to go through the muster uh, of a federal review. And they were scared. They saw what happened to many police officers who were involved in the Laquan McDonald shooting. They saw what happened to the people that investigated it. They saw what happened to their bosses. And I think there was some anxiety. I think there was some fear. So 2016, Chicago saw a number that we swore we never wanted to see again. Over 770 people were killed. Street stops, traffic stops, any measure of proactive policing dropped by more than half. And it's simply because police officers were, were scared. Uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel had a famous quote at the time, and he said that, that his police department is going fetal. That certainly was, was not a popular statement back then. But I can't say that the, that the mayor was wrong. I think the police officers were afraid of what would happen to them. They didn't know they would be given the same level of due process that others are given. And there was a lot of anxiety. So this presented one of the most profound internal communication and public perception challenges that to this day I've ever had to, to help uh, manage. It was incredible. Well, and how did you manage it? So we realized instantly that police officers in Chicago needed to get back to work. They needed a shot in the arm. They needed to know that they were supported by the city because we never wanted to see that, that number again, over 770 people killed as a result of gun violence. So we turned our crime fighting strategy on its head. And the first thing we did was get on an airplane and head out to other major city police departments that have had profound events and were able to, to come back in terms of reducing crime. So we went to Los Angeles. We met with Chief Charlie Beck and his command staff and learned the story of the LAPD and how they recovered from their consent decree and the Rampart scandal, how they made LA an incredibly safe city. After that, we got on another plane and we went to New York City. And we talked to Commissioner Jimmy O'Neill at the time. And we learned uh, the story of the NYPD and Commissioner Bratton and how they really turned that city around and how they were able to, to also recover after some pretty notable scandals there. So we all came back, we reformed our crime strategy around technology, and we decided that in order to get a handle on gun violence, we needed to implement a smarter level of policing. So Chicago adopted a, a strategy where we invested in gunshot detection, and those gunshot detectors were linked with the city's crime camera network. So most people don't realize this, but Chicago's like London, and almost every square inch is covered in some type of camera. So we were able at the time to implement a model where that once somebody fired a gun, you would get an alert on a, a gunshot detection system. And the cameras that would cover there were automatically able to record people and cars and everybody that was happening in that public space so that police officers could get to shooting calls much faster than they traditionally were when somebody called 911. When we analyzed the data, Police officers were getting to shootings three minutes faster. We really turned uh, the crime fighting strategy on its head at the time, and we started driving that number down back to where it should have been. At the same time, 
we were building support into our officers. We realized that you know, we needed to show them that this department was going to stand behind them in difficult situations. So there was a pretty robust internal communication effort to try to get them back to work and support them. We invested in equipment for the officers. We invested in technology and better training. We also, to show our commitment to accountability, we uh, voluntarily submitted to a, a consent decree that was uh, organized through the state attorney general. And we firmly put CPD on the path to reform so that a tragedy like the Laquan McDonald shooting could really never happen again. And today, 2022, uh, Chicago still remains in that consent decree, and they are still trying to show that they will come out of it just like Los Angeles did and become a um, a world-class agency. And to be clear, you were there 2015 to 2020, and this, the Department of Justice consent decree happened what year? Happened in 2017. I've seen departments actually grow and evolve that have been under consent decrees. I think LA has got the the best version because we've seen Oakland, Seattle. I mean, some of these consent decrees, you know, the monitors, they make this their full-time job. It's like they never want to get out because they're so lucrative for these monitoring teams to be a part of. But Los Angeles showed, you know, the way to do it. And I think it was Bill Bratton, who was the Los Angeles chief at the time that got that city out of their consent decree. So that that's the model that, that Chicago really looked at the best. I think that's that's what we wanted to model ourselves after. So it's like the New York, LA, Chicago trio. And every month we had uh, officers exchanging knowledge from both departments. We had NYPD officers in Chicago and we were going there. So it was a really healthy balance of policing learning from itself. It seems like that's best practices. Yeah, it, uh, it worked out well. But what I was most proud of in Chicago is I really had to reinvent the way the city communicated to, to the residents. Because what happened, or at least what the public perception was after Laquan McDonald, was that the department lied to them. The department sold a story that turned out not to be true, and it was later contradicted by video. So that's really hard to come in after that and be the spokesperson for the police department because nobody believes actually what you say. So I I think this is a fair statement. We brought a level of transparency to Chicago that, that had never existed prior. And especially when it came to officer-involved shootings, we were one of the first, if not the first, police department to start releasing body cameras. So I was there when Mayor Rahm Emanuel first announced that body cameras were coming to Chicago. You know, we outfitted a police force of 13,000 officers with body cameras and tasers. And that was one of the smartest things I think the department did. Today, they continue to be one of the uh, most progressive in, in terms of public transparency. They release videos, they release everything when it comes to a critical use of force. But it was a pretty educational and sometimes painful journey to get to where they are today. And I don't want to say they're without issue. There certainly have been challenges and scandals in Chicago since. I think, you know, each and every year that the department grows stronger and, and hopefully they will they will soon come out of that consent decree the strongest that they can. And so I think you said this at the top. When Laquan McDonald was killed, there were no body cams? No. There was a dash camera and a police car but no body cameras on police officers. Not everyone knows that not every part department has body cam to this day. Correct. And, you know, when you say they, at Chicago PD was one of the first to release video pre-prosecution, it, there is a, especially for you as a public relations professional managing the narrative, it's got to be difficult to release video, which we all now expect, rightly so, but often it's without any commentary from the police department. So people seeing it, but they make up their own decision about what they're seeing. 
Yeah, it, I got to say it was one of the hardest decisions I had to, to and I, I certainly didn't make it by myself, but I was a big part of that decision of, of how we release video and when we release video. And it, it, it was the police department, it was the mayor's office, but it really impacted primarily my office. I mean, we're, we were the ones that were, were going to release these things and I'm going to decide how to do it. So first thing I did is uh, I, I never like to make uh, big decisions like that in a vacuum or at least bring bring advice to a table as I, as I called my peers, my counterparts in other cities that have perhaps lived through this. And there was really no one at the time that that was releasing video that quickly. It was actually Mayor Emanuel, Rahm Emanuel's office, I'll give him credit for this, to came up with the policy that, that we did. So I, I traveled across the country, went to different places to try to figure out what a best practice would be. My biggest concern was that I was going to hurt criminal cases. I was going to be putting out videos right. potentially before witnesses were interviewed. And now I would contaminate, you know, who knows how many interviews. Fortunately, that never happened. Uh, you know, the city moved on with its transparency policy. Everybody held their breath, but luckily it did not have an adverse impact on any criminal case. And today it's now the gold standard for a police department to release video as quick as we can. So even, even where I am now in Fairfax, Virginia, we release all of our body camera video, all of our police radio transmissions, everything we have for an incident within 30 days of, of a police shooting. It's 30 days or less, actually. And that's been very transparent. One, one thing that I wanted to do in Chicago that I could not was it's important to be transparent, but it's also important to educate the public. Because when I see some of these body camera videos, even to this day, I will often miss the barrel of a handgun that might be tucked under somebody's sweater. I'm not trained to see those things, but police officers are. Mm -hmm. And they're trained to not only see them, they're trained to react to them very quickly. So when you're watching a video, it's very easy to miss uh, subtle clues that really help tell the story. What I wanted to do was not only release the unedited video in its entirety, but I wanted to show as much as we could the perspective of that police officer that made that decision to use force. I wanted to incorporate everything that that officer knew. So the call to 911, the radio transmission that they heard, how they were sent to that call. And I wanted to sew this all together so that the listener, the viewer, could kind of put themselves in the driver's seat of that car and feel what the officer may have felt, at least uh, to a point. Unfortunately, we were just because of the, the climate in Chicago, the community did not want us projecting a narrative that, that the police officers might have had. So I respect that decision. Uh, you know, I, I still wish I could have done it, but they decided that they would just release the video in its entirety and then let the public decide how it's interpreted. I'm, I'm so fortunate that, that they, they released it and we had the success that we did. So uh, when I came here to Fairfax, Virginia, I was able to implement this model where I released both. I showed the community, this is the unedited video in its entirety, curse words and everything included. But here's one from the perspective of the officer based on our investigation. And it's really helped educate the community here about you know, what it's like to be a police officer and how fast these life and death decisions are made. So uh, I think that's the, the best standard. I know the Los Angeles Police Department and certainly now dozens of others are using uh, that similar approach. Well, that sounds really brilliant because, you know, that is part of the challenge. When you see a 30-second video on the news, you don't know what has happened in the minutes prior. You don't know how the call came out. You don't know the officers. You don't know any of those details, that all of which do affect the officer's response. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, but I also think it's important to have both. I, I think people, there is a point where, you know, we, we, we can't trust government 
uh, completely. That's, that's why the media exists. And I, I'm a big proponent of the news. You also have to have an educated perspective. So I, I'm a big proponent of releasing both versions of video, one unedited and one, I don't like to use the word edited, but one that shows the perspective of, of the officers responding with everything lining up sequentially from the 911 call to the dispatch to the response and to the use of force. I'm glad you're able to do that in Fairfax. And I want to talk about Fairfax before we leave your time with Chicago. Again, why is it so violent there? Chicago is very similar to Baltimore in many respects. I think, you know, there are certainly impoverished communities. Chicago is a historically segregated city. You know, there's just a lot of uh, disinvestment, I think, that has occurred in some of these impoverished neighborhoods. You know, you go to downtown Chicago and it's, you know, it's it's probably one of the more beautiful cities in, in the U.S., and downtown Chicago by Lake Michigan is is fantastic. And then you go to the south and the west side, and you see some deeply impoverished communities. You see communities that have almost been forgotten by society. It, it's miles before you get to the closest grocery store. Its schools are dilapidated. I think it's it's really the story of, of two cities. That's some of the historical reasons why Chicago has some of the, the challenges that it does, is this is, is entrenched disinvestment and poverty that have occurred in these communities where you know, working for the gangs is all these people know. And Chicago's got a lot of gangs. I will say that. Baltimore, I thought the gang culture was deep in Baltimore, but Chicago is so much larger and there are many, many more gangs. There's black gangs, there's Hispanic gangs, there's the cartels, there's even the Italian organized crime in Chicago. So uh, you name it, and, and Chicago's probably got it in terms of a of a crime uh, syndicate. It, it, again, it just, it speaks volumes on the poli- the people that decide to become Chicago cops. And I'm talking about generations of people, right? People's fathers and mothers and grandparents are all Chicago cops. And there's such an immense pride in being a Chicago policeman. And I think that city, like no other, really cherishes its its police department. And they have come such a long way from the days of Laquan McDonald, where people were literally spitting on the ground as a police officer would walk by them, to... Um, you know, when, when we sadly, we, we all lost a friend. Paul Bauer uh, was a police commander there and a, and a dear friend to, to many of us. He was killed on duty going after a, a guy with a gun, a terrible person with a gun. Killed Paul in a stairwell right near City Hall. And the city came out and, and supported Paul Bauer. And, and the, the entire skyline of the city of Chicago, all the, the big office buildings, they all spelled the letters CPD in the lights of the offices of the skyscrapers. Um <laughs> So I've never seen a city hug its police department as much as I did during the times we were in Chicago. So great tragedy brought that city together in in some remarkable ways. Well, and you see that very often in many markets where, and we're seeing it now, and that's when the community shows its support. And one of the reasons I do this podcast and when I started working with law enforcement 12 years ago is I I know that support is there and it's, it's kind of heartbreaking that it is it's shown only when tragedy strikes. So my goal is to try to, with the help of people like you, help people understand law enforcement better and the commitments they do make so that that support's there every day. It's my goal too. It's my, and it's, it's really my job to tell the stories, the heroic stories that happen every day. And I'll, I'll go back to that line from Baltimore. Here's what you didn't see on last night's news. Here's all of the great things that happened. And it doesn't have to be a Chicago. It doesn't have to be a Baltimore. It can be wherever you live. There are great things that happened every day in the last 18 hours that men and women have done as police officers, as firemen, uh, as first responders. And I think those stories 
need to be told. So that's that's kind of you know why I come to work every day. Every day we come into work, we don't just wait for the phone to ring for a reporter to ask us questions. We decide what are we going to tell the community today and how are we going to tell it? We're going to make a video. We're going to produce a podcast. We're going to create some type of engaging content so that we could tell a story and share some of the wonderful things that happen in the city. And when we screw up, guess what? We're going to tell you too. We're going to put it out there just as much as we do you know, some of the great things that occur. So I'm, I'm fortunate. I uh, really love what I do. It's re- policing has kind of been the only real communications job. I shouldn't say the, the only, but it's, it's been the one that I've gotten the most fulfillment out of. And in Chicago, uh, of all places, we were one of the first police departments to win an Emmy Award for how we communicated with the city. So it was, here's a team of police officers that knew nothing about video production, knew nothing about storytelling. And what I did is, is we, you know, there's 13,000 officers in Chicago. I found some that had a passion in marketing or a passion, a love for their agency. And I said, come join me in the communications office. About 30 people in total that we had. Um, we built a pretty phenomenal video team that went out there every day and looked for stories to tell the city. And they would put together these great videos, these great stories, and we would sit down there and edit. And this is where I really credit my early days in television because um, really kind of helped, you know, help prepare me for, for this line of work. So anyway, we did profile uh, hundreds of, of great things that occurred. And one of those little video vignettes uh, was anonymously submitted to the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and we won an Emmy Award First, police, first major city police department to win an Emmy Award. So perhaps the, uh, the highest moment of my career was, uh, was sitting at that Emmy dinner and them saying Chicago Police Department. Congratulations. That's great. And then you were able to tell your parents, hey, it did pay off. <laughs> I was. I was. Yeah. Tony and Maria, tough crowd, those Italian parents. Uh, but So you are now with... Fairfax County, Virginia. So Fairfax County is right outside of Washington, D.C. There's about 1.3 million people that live in Fairfax County. And it is one of the largest suburbs outside of Washington on the Virginia side of the border. Uh, it is the largest police department in the, in the state of Virginia and a deeply engaged community with a very, very low crime rate. Fairfax County kind of prides itself as being the safest jurisdiction of its size in the country, or a county of of 1.3 million people, roughly, they have an exceptionally low number of violent crime. So as I was transitioning out of Chicago, I lived in Virginia before going to Chicago. Chicago was never really on the, the plan or the path, but I am so incredibly thankful that they thought of me to, to go up there and help out with, uh, with some of the challenges that they had. I'm, I'm incredibly thankful to, to Rahm Emanuel, who, who was the mayor then, who you know, picked this kid out of Baltimore to help join the team and, and, and figure things out. So I decided, though, that the bad part about Chicago, it, it's just, it's all, you're all in. And at the time, I had had my son, first son, first and only son, there, there would go almost a full week where I wouldn't even see my, my wife and kid. So after five years of that, I said, all right, it's time to, it's time to get something a little slower. So I found Fairfax, Virginia. It's this incredibly progressive police department, extremely low violent crime rate. It's got a lot of resources in terms of support for the agency. So I wanted to be part of a department that was kind of the opposite of Chicago and Baltimore. And it's been it's been phenomenal. I mean, the, the officers here are incredibly committed, just like Baltimore and Chicago, but just different, right? You're not responding to the level of trauma and crisis that exists in those major cities. So you have time here to really be community police men and women, right? Figure out the problems. Why are people breaking into garages and stealing catalytic converters? 
Well, instead of call, uh, responding to 30 911 calls in a shift, we can spend some time and fix things. So it was really fascinating for me to kind of see crime fighting at this level, quality of life crimes instead of, you know, cities that are faced with violent crime. But some of the same, you know, stories that we've talked about in tactics, I, I wanted to employ here. I wanted to figure out how can we better connect with the people that live in Fairfax County and, and make their police department more accountable? How can we educate people about the great things that these people are doing? So that's the same same things we started doing here. I took the job and I immediately built a, a video team. Mm. We really built this this dynamic team of storytellers. And today they're out there right now finding and producing these great stories that police officers do every day to make this a safer a safer county. And well, you did choose a challenging time. I mean, it's never easy, right? So you joined in April 2020, and then George Floyd's murder was May 2020. Yeah. And so what kind of impact did that have on your community? What Fairfax showed me was, you know, what you can have when you have a community that supports and trusts you. So everywhere across the world, you were seeing violent uprising. You were seeing these these awful things happen to downtown cities because people were rightfully angry at the, at the atrocity that took place out west with, with Mr. Floyd. What you didn't see in Fairfax County is a single car broken. You didn't see a, a building burned down. And it's because the community respected the police department. You saw civil demonstrations. You saw uh, individuals walking in the street in support of the people who had been hurt. But we did not have any unrest or any problems with any of the demonstrations that we saw is because we largely have a very, very trusted relationship with the people that live and work in Fairfax. One thing that Fairfax has been doing that I wish we were able to do in Baltimore and Chicago was all of the general orders and the policies that govern the police department. Guess what? They're co-written with residents that live here. Hmm. Whether you're going to have a use of force policy or a policy that says how you chase cars or drive cars, those policies are co-produced with the community. So they have a voice in how they're going to be policed here. And that was something, you know, now I think more and more agencies are doing that. But, you know, Fairfax have been doing this since, you know, 2012, 2013, this co-production. So you have a committee of... It's, it's kind of like a committee. Yeah, it's, it's individuals that have an interest in being involved. So we every time we have a policy, we kind of put it out for public review. They have a uh, series of meetings to go over kind of the national the national standards of, of where policing is. And then we help, we put pen to paper and develop versions of our policy. And that, that policy goes through kind of uh, a cycle, right? A cycle of review and a cycle of approval. And ultimately, it gets to the point where, where it becomes policy for the police department. So They've been doing that here for a long time, much longer than, than I have been in the department. But um, I think that really lends itself to why people trust the police department here is because they have a voice in how they're policed. That's really interesting. I mean, unfortunately, you sort of see the opposite happening in the markets that are not as supportive of the police. And you're finding citizen groups, city councils making laws pushing through legislation that are tying the hands of police when in fact if people came together and did what you are describing the citizens would feel heard but you have to do that with your police department because citizens don't know how to police yeah uh it was eddie johnson in chicago who said uh, uh maybe somebody said it before him but you know there's no community without the police and there's no police without the community so um fairfax has done a great job and i, I think it's because they didn't do it after the problem started They've been doing it all along. Mm. So the people here had a level of, of trust. So it's really amazing to see how engaged the community is here. 
So it was really educational being able to work in these just completely different police cultures. Indeed. <laughs> so you're not facing things like defunding, abolish, reform. Fairfax never had any, Fairfax County never had any bills or proposals to defund the police department. As a matter of fact, it was it was increased funding. You know, how do we get more training? And I, I got to say, having been in, this is now my, my third major city police department or major police department, the Fairfax County Police Department train like any other I've ever seen. And it's probably largely part because they don't have, they're not running from crisis to crisis, right? So they can put officers through mm-hmm. robust training. You get out what you put in. So if you've got a community that invests in policing, you're going to end up with a very professional, a very accountable police department that's very high on ethics and integrity. And that's Fairfax County. When you don't invest in police departments and you don't train officers, you have bad outcomes. And what's important is that um, the defund movement was was really an effort to try to punish policing. But when you punish policing, you really end up punishing yourself because our communities aren't as safe. You know, I don't want to live in a neighborhood like that. I don't want any family to have to live in a neighborhood like that. So I want to increase funding to police departments so that they can hire accountability structures, they can hire better trainers, and they can make themselves the best that they could possibly be. Agreed. And, you know, when you were talking about Chicago PD and the officers at the point at which they were afraid to go out and police, because to recap what you said, a former federal judge would review the constitutionality of every stop, of every use of force. So they were terrified of getting it wrong and the possible repercussions. Yeah. Right. And so then violence increased because you had a sort of call it depolicing response. It's sort of like what's happening today in some markets, either because of the staffing or because of new legislation that are tying the hands of officers. So you are seeing that happening now. Yeah. And Bill Bratton has said it had said it best. We need to refund police departments, not because they need to make a lot more money, but we need to make sure that they have the resources necessary to train them as best as we can, to compensate them accordingly for the danger that they put up with. But really, Fairfax has been an example of that, you know, far before the tragedies of of George Floyd and so on. They've been doing things, I think, uh, partly the way policing should be done. It's, it's just been very, very educational for me getting, getting to see both sides. You know, for me, coming from major cities with, you know, with a lack of resources and, and just tremendous socioeconomic problems, it was refreshing to be part of, uh, of a culture like this. Did January 6th have uh, an emotional toll on all of you? Did you provide mutual aid? Yeah, uh, January 6th was, you know, was a day that, that this country should never forget. And, and I, I don't care where anybody is on the political spectrum. But the individuals that cross the line into the United States Capitol on that day need to be held accountable and should be ashamed of themselves because that is the symbol of America. That is the symbol of our democracy. I can tell you that there was Fairfax County police officers with Washington, D.C. and dozens of others from Maryland and Virginia that were defending that Capitol. We were one of the first agencies when that call for mutual aid came out. So um, Montgomery County, you know, dozens, you name everybody in the greater D.C. area went for the most part. It was a difficult moment to see, but it was also a proud moment that, you know, we didn't even, as soon as that call came out, everybody turned their red and blue lights on and, and, and head toward the Capitol to, to defend the Capitol. Wow. 
because I know living in New York City in nine, during 9-11, it was a national tragedy. But when you're actually living there, it, it's a, it feels different. Yeah, to, you know, everyone takes these things, has their own opinions on these things. I think most would agree that uh, what happened on January 6th can never happen again. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not, uh, not staying in Fairfax County too long. thought I would stay here forever and just retire from here, but I'm going to be moving on to the federal government. I've taken on the position as Chief of Communications for the United States Secret Service. Well, that's fantastic. Another agency that's so incredible, so deep in tradition and integrity. You know, I think it's going to be the honor of my professional life to go there and help educate America on the great things that the, that the agents of the Secret Service do. So, What do civilians need to know about the Secret Service? It sounds like a really intriguing... It does. I, I certainly know the, you know, the Secret Service is, is known for protecting the president, protecting democracy and protecting foreign leaders. I think that's what most people think it is. But guess what? 50% of their mission is investigations. They're one of the preeminent federal law enforcement agencies around cybercrime. I never knew that. They're certainly known for protecting the American currency. Well, with that comes cryptocurrency. So they have all of these uh, investigative resources on how they're protecting the American financial system. They're protecting the, the cybersecurity. And my goal there is to really tell the stories of those agents, share how they're protecting these things, how they're working to protect democracy, especially as we talk about January 6th. You know, these men and women every day are making sure that, that our political leaders are safe. Looking forward to that challenge and really a new level, hopefully taking what I've, what I've learned on state and local policing and taking it to the federal level. Congratulations. That is exciting. I will close by thanking you for all you've done for law enforcement. Yes, Abby, I'm, I'm certainly incredibly thankful for the experience that I've had. I have made incredible friendships in my career and in this profession. I've seen just the worst things that could happen in humanity, but I've also seen the most heroic and amazing people that have tried to help communities through some of some of the hardest moments of their lives. So pretty fortunate that that I've got to experience what I've got to experience. You know, thank you again for sharing the the real stories, the real messages of what those women and men do every day. Yeah, and thank you. I mean, you, you know, you you certainly don't have to do this podcast. And the fact that you're going out there yourself and trying to share stories of of police officers and first responders that that are out there making a difference for their community, it means a lot because it's coming from someone who, who is not part of a police department, who's not getting paid by a government to do it, you know, you're, you're a, a resident yourself. You, you, you live in a, in a city. And now you're helping to tell the stories of these amazing people that work to make that city safer. Well, thank you. It is a, it is a mission for sure. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for so much of your time. And thanks again to you, the listener, for tuning in. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. Feel free to leave a comment and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or email me. All of that info is in the written description of the show.